Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And I'm, I'm a, a writer. writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer, but today we have Kevin Maloney. Kevin Maloney is the author of The Redheaded Pilgrim out now on $2 Radio, Horse Girl Fever out on Clash Books in 2024, and Cult of Loretta. At times, a TJ Maxx associate, grocery clerk, outdoor school instructor, organic farmer, electrician, high school English teacher, and teddy bear salesman, Kevin currently works as a web developer and writer. His stories have appeared in Hobart, Barrel House, Green Mountains Review, and a number of other journals and anthologies. He lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife, Aubrey. The Redheaded Pilgrim is his newest book. It's an irresistible novel of misadventure and new beginnings, of wanderlust and bad decisions, of parenthood and divorce, and of the heartfelt truths we unearth when we least expect it. Welcome, Kevin. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I had so much fun reading your book. I flew through it. I think I read it in a day or two. Um, and I I laughed aloud quite a bit and truly related to... Um, you know, like this, this sort of darkness you find yourself in, in your forties, where you're sort of looking back and wondering, you know, if you took the right turns and, and what turns you took. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. So uh, it's, it's a true delight. To well, I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah. I, I feel like the, my mid forties are suddenly resembling my teenager years where I'm like come full circle and my, <laughs> my, my kid is an adult and now I have all these possibilities back. So Oh God, I can't even imagine my, my oldest is 10. My youngest is four. Um, so that's going to happen to me when I'm in my fifties. Yeah. You're right in the middle of it. I'm going to be in diapers, you know, which I guess yeah. is kind of a callback <laughs> to youth, right? So there you yeah, go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, Kevin, we would love for you to read to us a little bit. Yeah. I'm going to read um, a chapter from the book called chronic tonsillitis. It was December 14th, 10 days before my penis amputation. Burlington was covered in a foot of snow. Afraid to appear any, in public as anything less than 100% cowboy, I continued sporting only a frayed pair of vintage leather boots as footwear. Shuffling down Church Street, my toes turned blue as the god I secretly prayed to every night, begging to him to use one of his dozen arms to send me a girlfriend. I had the day off work and ran into Wendy. She asked how I was doing. I said, pretty good, except I totally screwed up this menage a trois the other night. She said, oh man, that sucks. Do you want to pick up a bottle of wine, go back to my place and talk about it? An hour later, we were sitting on the floor of her apartment listening to Paul Simon's Hearts and Bones. We talked about moon signs and T.S. Eliot. Our teeth turned purple. It wasn't even noon. At one point, Wendy said, there's something I want to read you. She reached over to her bookshelf and pulled out a book. It was Delta of Venus by Anna East Noon. I'd been down this road before. I stretch out on the floor and rest my head on Wendy's lap like a baby. What are you doing? She asked. I'm resting my head on your lap like a baby, I said. Stop that. It's weird. I sat up and Wendy read to me. Delta Venus was the opposite of the rainbow. The sex parts weren't hallucinations. They were pornographically descriptive. Her sex was like a giant hothouse flower, read Wendy, larger than any the Baron had seen, and the hair around it abundant, abundant and curled, glossy black. Wendy was wearing the same thing as the day we met, a bright red sweater with holes in the elbows. I wanted to reach out and pinch the dry patch of elbow skin through her ragged woolen windows. Instead, we started kissing. 
It was a hundred degrees in the room. I put my hands under her sweater. You could have boiled lobsters in there. Paul Simon sang about the blood of Christ's mountains. I found the clasp of Wendy's bra. Wendy had a magnificent untrimmed bush. Her vulva looked like a red crayon melted on a fur fur coat. It scared me. Looking at it, I started to lose my mind. I put a condom on, leaned forward, and blacked out. When I regained consciousness, I was lying on my back, covered in sweat. Did it happen, I asked. What do you mean, asked Wendy. Did we have sex? (laughs) Yeah, why? Never mind, I said. Just kidding. Wendy and I had sex 20 or 30 times, and then I developed chronic tonsillitis from smoking 20-plus cigarettes a day outside in subarctic temperatures. I called my parents to find out if I had health insurance. It turned out I did. While I'd been gallivanting across America, leading nature hikes and sleeping in cow pastures, my dad had been going to work every day, making payments on the house and providing health insurance to his long-haired prodigal son. I went to an urgent care and asked what was wrong with me. The doctor looked down my throat and made a disgusted face. You don't smoke, do you? He asked. A little, I lied. Okay, wow. What? I asked. Well, in a healthy individual, tonsils are soft masses of lymphatic tissue that help the body fight off foreign pathogens. Yours are stinky hot pockets full of pus and bacteria. The doctor recommended immediate surgery. When I told my parents, they suggested I fly home to Oregon for the operation so I could recover in a temperate climate that didn't try to kill me every time I walked out the door. It happened quickly. I remember the airplane landing and the doctor looking in my mouth saying, yeah, let's get rid of those stupid things. Then I was lying on a gurney under a bright light. The surgeon said, count down from 10. I opened my mouth to to say 10 and accidentally swallowed a mouthful of darkness. When I woke up, I was in the guest bedroom of my parents' house, high in Percocet. My head felt like a helium balloon. If I didn't concentrate on my surroundings, it floated up to the ceiling and I had to yank the string back to pull it back down. I tried to distract myself with television. When I clicked the button on the remote control, my face fell off. I looked around for my face and found it on the TV screen. Only Billy Crystal was wearing it. I didn't understand. I seemed to be in a movie. Meg Ryan and I were in love, but we couldn't get along. We kept screwing up our relationship in funny ways that made everyone in the world laugh. The movie kept going and going. It was amazing. Not amazing. Important. I remember thinking, has Dostoevsky seen this? When the movie ended, I was pretty sure I'd gone insane. There was a knock on my door. It was my mom. She she said I had a phone call. I picked up the receiver. It was silent. I waited and waited, but nothing happened. After a while, I heard breathing. I couldn't understand what it meant. Then I realized I hadn't said hello. Hello, I said. Hey, this is Wendy. How'd your surgery go? I listened, but nothing happened. It was a prank call. I did the same thing when I was a teenager, calling numbers at random, listening to strangers speak into the void. Their peaceful nights ruined by the silence of what they presumed, must have presumed was a serial killer. Kevin, said my tormentor. That name, it used to be mine. What a funny time. I was over it. I hung up the phone and stared at the ceiling. The popcorn spackle laughed at me. My head started floating. I yanked the cord, and then my mom, who gave birth to me in 1976, brought me a cherry-flavored popsicle. Thank you so much. That section includes um, (laughs) one of my favorite lines in the book, which is the line about her vulva looking like a red crayon melted on a fur coat <laughs> and that it scared it scared kevin <laughs> yeah um, and i had forgotten that just before that is the her sex was like a giant hothouse flower larger than any of the baron had seen and the hair around it was abundant and curled and it got me thinking that there are so many descriptions of of women's bushes <laughs> throughout <laughs> history and there <laughs> it's always you know it was huge it was enormous it was terrifying um, and I, I vow to myself that I will start describing men's bushes in my own writing. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> the world literature needs more of that. That's right. They have their own charms, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really, uh, that, that's just a small example of the fun you'll have when you read this book. Um, the chapter starts with a mention of a penis amputation, which um, Kevin in the book has vowed to have his penis amputated if he doesn't lose his virginity soon. Um, <laughs> and so that's why that chapter starts that way when thankfully he didn't have to do it. Yeah. Um, I think it really captures something like the the sort of surety and desperation that um, men and women have that there are people out there having way more sex than us. Oh, hundred percent. Right. And how that can just lead to such buffoonery and, and yearning um, and, and years long journeys to looking for this kind of fulfillment. Um, so I just kind of want to hear, hear you talk a little bit about 
you know, the role that sex played as you were writing it, the role that sex played, you know, in, in, in shaping the story. Um, you know, you say in the beginning, or Kevin says in the beginning of the book that this is the book he's always wanted to write. Um, yeah. So I just want to hear you talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in real life, uh, and I have to kind of distinguish between the two because the character in the book's name is, is Kevin Maloney, but, uh, there, there are yours is Kevin are... Maloney, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, so there are m- much in the book is true and and much is totally made up. But um, yeah, in real life, you know, I didn't lose my virginity until I was twenty one, almost twenty two, which at the time just felt like epically old. You know, like I had just all my friends, all my peers had had this experience, and the longer I waited, the more it grew in like taking over my brain and mm-hmm. um and and you know I th- I think I just like in the book uh because the book is a lot about kind of modeled after books where a young man goes to find the meaning of life he leaves his hometown and goes out seeking and I thought it would be funny to kind of make losing his virginity part of that quest or increasingly important it may start as a, a spiritual journey but it comes increasingly carnal as he mm-hmm. as he goes through life and almost becomes this like Don Quixote thing where he's like slaying windmills, but just keeps on screwing up and and not losing his virginity. (laughs) I was 19. And I remember thinking, I got to get this over with. This guy's fine. (laughs) I just have to get it over with. I can't do this anymore. (laughs) Everyone around me is, you know, out there. Um, Well, so how did, how did you, because this isn't your first book. Um, That's right. How did you get to the point where you thought I'm going to write that book, that book that I've been waiting to write? Um, yeah, well, uh, my first book is called Cult of Loretta. It came out in 2015, and that book was just a total accident. Um, I was writing mostly short stories at the time, and I had like three short stories that one of them had been published, the other two hadn't, but they all had this like mysterious woman at the center of them, and I just had this idea and changed it. All made all three women have the same name and put them together and I was like oh there's something here and then I wrote the book in like 10 days it was just Mm -hmm. like it -hmm. was just clicked and um but it was you know it was it's and I still love the book it's very like it's where I found my voice in a lot of ways as a writer but I think in the back of my mind I always had this idea of um wanting to write a book that I don't know I was you know in, in real life I you know I left home at I dropped out of college and started traveling around America and kind of had this almost, you know, love hate relationship with the beat generation. I knew how, even then how problematic they were, but like, I also wanted to like go test the road and travel around. And my experience in real life was just comically absurd. You know, like I I would get (laughs) weird jobs. None of it was like the romantic vision I had. And, and so I think I want, have always wanted to write the book of like, you know, what would on the road look like combined with Napoleon Dynamite or something, just something that a book <laughs> that can laugh at itself and doesn't take itself too seriously. And um, so, yeah, when I finally, like, after Cult of Loretta, when I set out to write my next book, I was like, okay, that's 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 the book I have to write someday and better to do it now because, you know, um, I don't want to I don't want to kick it down the road too far. Mm-hmm. In the prologue, Kevin, the narrator mentions um, this one was a motherfucker. Right. I almost gave up a thousand times. A few weeks after I wrote the first chapter, my dad died. Then my girlfriend and I broke up. I got depressed for a while. Then I got better. At some point I wrote all these chapters and none of them were any good, but I kept writing. And I think after reading the book and going back and thinking about where the novel opens, because that is such a it's such a strong decision as far as putting that in the book, as opposed to having it be like extra textual and something that people can pick up from, from interviews or from even from like jacket copy or whatever it may be. The decision to include that, was that something that you had all along and related to that, just the self-deprecating tone that really lends itself to kind of the misadventures the narrator experiences was the tone there right away was that something that you had to really work for or or is that kind of did that come fairly easy well well interestingly like 
kind of one of the late last edits after we sent out the arcs was a decision to cut that, I think. And, and so the, the final copy doesn't include that. I think the idea being we wanted readers to kind of start fresh without um, necessarily, you know, seeing the book as something as a struggle. But, you know, I think mm. I did want to front load that first chapter with like, a lot of like confusion and, 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 uh, and, you know, so I, you know, hopefully, hopefully this book is one that just like lays all its problems, like, you know, hands it right to the reader. And is like, I, you know, here, here's all the ways I fuck up in life. I'm not a whole person. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm broken right from the first page, you know? And, and I think that's it's like, still there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, in a good way. Yeah. And, and I think that's like my favorite kind of book, to read is when the biggest target in the book is the author writing it and they're comfortable Same. sharing all their flaws right <laughs> off the bat. And, and, you know, I think that hopefully Kevin Maloney, the character, because I fictionalize, you know, quite a bit throughout the book, I think it let me make him an even bigger target. Cause I'm like, okay, it's not totally me. There's a, there's like, it's like 90% me, but because there's 10% that isn't, I can just shoot arrows at him throughout the whole novel, just make him even more absurd and flawed and broken. So um, yeah, I guess that was my hope because if to the extent that it's auto fiction, which is not totally a hundred percent, but to the extent I'm going to write about myself in my own life, I want myself to be the target. If anyone looks bad, I hope it's me. You know, it's so funny. I've seen that, that phrase tossed around in some of the coverage and it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring it up had I not. And I, you know, I, I didn't yet, but I, I would not have thought of this book as autofiction because of how funny it is, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like autofiction takes itself tend, really seriously, takes itself seriously, tends to be drier and also tends to be like a little bit more quotidian day by day mm-hmm. um, where the, if the target is the author, you know, if the target, if the intention of the work being talked about is to skewer the author to skewer him or herself their self um it's done so with a kind of like uh accretion of accretion of mistakes but without with like no wink like mm-hmm. i feel like the thing about that's special about redheaded pilgrim is like uh i mean even before you begin the book like just from the cover you're like okay, I have a sense of, I have a sense of how this is going to exist. I don't know. in in a good way. So. Yeah. And the cover and your author photo work really well yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't think I usually feel that way. Um, but like, it's like Alex was saying, like I looked at the cover and I looked, which that bear sort of has the same color hair as you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, I was like, ah, oh, okay. I I'm right there. And it's, it's like a hard earned um it's a hard earned way that you've taken yourself seriously and enough to uh allow the pot shots and allow mm-hmm. like you're saying allow the arrows to come at you mm-hmm. yeah um, oh go ahead i was just gonna say i you know that opening where kevin is sitting in the queen anne's lace thinking about the 12 years you know and the years before that um and then it ends the book ends in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it feels like a different perspective than like the ending of, you know, he's in the same exact place as he was in that opening prologue, but the perspective feels different. And maybe it's just our perspective as we've read has changed um, because it seems like the aim in this book was to, to sort of explain to us and Kevin and yourself, how you could go from this, like you say, Don Quixote, John Care. John Kerouac, you you know John Kerouac. <laughs> yeah. He's the lesser one. John Kerouac, um, yeah. <laughs> he wrote on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Um going from that to kind of like living the life that your father lived and not yeah. being not being too upset about it, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that I mean I I I really did like the the part that um, you know, the struggle to write this book that was in that original edition, like the struggle for me was like in the terms of structure, like I had, I had all the, all the chapters, but I kept on thinking I needed to do something really modern where I like start 
during the marriage and then switch back to the past and then jump forward to the marriage and then go back to the past. Um, and, but I just kept on feeling kind of called to write more a more old school narrative where even though it starts in the present moment, then it jumps back to Kevin as a 14 year old. And from there just tells this very linear story. But I did think it was important to kind of start the present moment in kind of young Kevin's worst nightmare, which is like, this is the one thing I'm never going to do is be an office worker. And the mm-hmm. novel starts with him being an office worker. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like you, you know, from the, the beginning of Kevin's journey that he's going to end up in the one place he never wanted to end up. But I, my hope is that by the time you read the whole book and you come back to him, yeah, you see him totally differently now. And you also see him kind of almost being optimistic, like, okay, I've caught myself. Like, there's no reason I have to stay doing this. I can change everything now. Like, he's like reconnecting to to his youthful self. And, uh, you know, I think that's kind of like where I find myself in life right now is just reconnecting to who I was when I was 18 and seeing life as being full of possibilities. And, um, and in a way, like, even though like a lot of the the writers I loved, some of them, I know how problematic they were, um, or even just like, you know, people like Kurt Vonnegut. And I wanted to write the book I would hand to my 18 year old self in a way. Mm. And, and so when I was working with uh, Eric Obanoff at $2 radio, I was, he was like, what, what vibe you want for the cover? And I was like, I want it to feel like a the 60s or 70s paperback that you would just that some kid would go hitchhiking with, you know, and I don't, <laughs> I didn't know, like, I didn't give any more direction than that. And it's funny, there's a bear on the cover. And I think everybody thinks like the bear is going to be a big part of it. But like, <laughs> yeah, I think it really just captures the spirit of the West, hopefully. But yeah, there's, I mean, there is a, there's a lot of teddy bears in it, but not so much. Uh, That's true. Right? There are. <laughs> but I mean, true to true to what you were saying, Kevin, if this thing is on like a pharmacy spinner rack and you hit this one, you're picking it up. Like, oh my God, like, what a good. You're like, what the fuck is this? This is coming yes. with me. So I think you, I think Eric nailed it. You guys you guys did it for sure um it was interesting to hear what you just said because i think you know where the narrator kevin ends up is obviously complicated by the fact that the book exists something that the reader also begins with which has the same impact as the prologue that i quoted from that you guys ended up cutting yeah so i think that's a super it's really interesting because like if you're thinking about being concerned about the reader (laughs) like wow man you know did it turn out it's like well yeah you're holding you're holding evidence right i mean in a way even if you're not drawing a like a, a direct line from writer kevin to narrator kevin it's like well the book exists asshole so (laughs) yeah and like in a way i'm revisiting a time in my life when i had this idea that i wanted to write and it just wasn't going anywhere but then like you are holding the book so you know that like to the extent that it's autobiographical yeah like this person became a writer it it did it did get somewhere Yeah. yeah this person is making something exactly i can relate to to that so much though i was given a copy of dharma bums and it that was that was like the gateway drug for me it, like it really was like dharma bums was like holy fuck like what the fuck is this and uh it, that was it it was like from then on it was like okay you know what did kerouac read what did these other people read and then just kind of working like the daisy chain backwards of who was reading what but it's unbelievable how even if that kind of thing feels so distant as you continue writing and continue trying to figure out what the fuck it is, it's like that, that stuff is such, so, uh, I don't know, alluring, um, to, to kids. I, I remember I went through the same thing where it was like, this is it. This is someone like, you know, it makes sense to yeah. take these pills and write straight for three, you know, <laughs> and I, isn't it Jack Kerouac who had a poem that was like, there ain't no God. There ain't no me. I'm telling you, man, sure as shit. I thought that was the most brilliant thing I had ever read. I, you know, I'm a teenager. Yeah. I'm like, I'm telling you, man, sure as shit. And I don't know what it is. And maybe they just captured this like um, this like last dregs of childhood that we, you know, we we don't even realize we need to hold on to until it's too late. Maybe they were able to access that because I do think that a lot of writers go through that Kerouac beat poet you know phase yeah um 
Hunter Thompson phase, you know, like it's, there's something there that is important to, I don't know, I guess like showing us another way. That's not the traditional. I was, I was, you know, it's funny. Like when I, when I was writing this and most of the time I write, I don't, I don't think like an English teacher. I don't think of like where the themes come from. I just, Mm. you know, nor should you. Yeah. Yeah. But like after the fact, now I have to like talk about it and you know, that I've done some thinking about it and, um, you know, I was thinking about Jim Morrison, who makes an appearance in the novel yeah. where mm-hmm. uh, the narrator visits his grave. And Jim Morrison, I feel like, is kind of like, you know, the 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 Jack Kerouac of of rock and roll or something. But like, you know, I, I grew up in Beaverton, Oregon, which is just, you know, uh, the the most the, like the most suburb of all suburbs. It's just there's a ton of sprawl, and it was happening when I was a kid there. So like. Uh, when when I started in grade school, um, it, it had originally been like a one room schoolhouse and there was like a horse pasture oh and like gosh. a first grade teacher like would feed the horse. But by the time I l- was in the sixth grade, it was a Taco Bell. And like I just oh. I was like watching oh wow. and like the, the the field across the street in those six years turned into a strip mall and it had been like a barn full of bats. And I was like watching the magical world disappear in front of me. So I think mm. like. you know in in assessing like why are teenagers drawn to that stuff I think it's like at least for me growing up in the suburbs you're watching all the magic and disappear from the world and then you go you go looking for it like where can I find that you know I I I know that the world is bigger than you know that that Panda Express across the street but like (laughs) you know like where do you find that and so I think it primes teenagers at least my experience from the suburbs to like you know, just drawn to anything. Like if Jim Morrison talks about a lizard, I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's about like finding it for yourself, right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not so much like being told about it or anything. It's like finding something meaningful to you that maybe hasn't ever been seen or experienced before. Believing in that is like, you know, a a huge part of, I think why I started writing. Um, and now I just do it for the money, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> God, it really shows in the work, Lindsay. I mean, actually, I hope so. I, I shot Kevin a text earlier and I was like, it's getting to the point where I'm looking for a new co-host. <laughs> and uh, Kevin seemed interested. So, yeah. But there's also there's also like a dissonance between at least there was for me in high school, like the stuff that you're reading in school and, you know, something like Dharma bums or Siddharth. Or whatever it may be that kind of sets you off. It's like, and I remember when you first read that stuff, and you're like, oh my God, they're they're fucking and they're drinking and like <laughs> they're they're smoking cigarettes. Well, what brand of cigarettes are they? Okay, I gotta go get the same brand of cigarettes yeah. and like what kind of boots does this guy have? Okay, I gotta get the same kind of boots and like all that. It's just like it feels like a guide map away from the books you're reading in school in a way. And and yeah, like a like a like a a suggestion of a different type of life for sure even though it's <laughs> you grow up a little bit and you're like well maybe not <laughs> i mean i was not a big reader um in grade school or middle school because i think i just you know i couldn't find the books that felt you know i mean mtv just filled me with amazing images and grunge was just starting to happen <laughs> and i was i needed something that would compete with that and so it wasn't until high school when you know, my friends and I would start going to the library and be like, hand each other like a, a book by Albert Camus. And we're like, this is called existentialism. You need to read this, you know, <laughs> and that like it had to compete with, you know, Kurt Cobain. So I think uh, it took me a while to find that drug. You know, oh, that's funny. I read that in college, um, Sartre and Camus, because I was taking a bunch of French and it like, and I know their philosophies are different, but I, it really put me in like a who cares phase like you know just like (laughs) well people have already said everything that's going to be said that matters and they are saying it doesn't matter anyway and also like all that matters is the moment you know like all that matters is like the you know the seconds ticking by i've uh i've never read Camus, but i've absolutely seen the picture of him with his collar up smoking a cigarette and i thought that was like the fucking coolest picture ever i was like oh god damn that's what being a writer is. It's smoking. It's looking yeah. like that. I mean, just look at that picture. You've basically read all his work, you know? Yeah, it's the same thing, right? <laughs> there you go. Exactly. You save people a lot of time. That's right. Um, tell us what it's like to work with $2 Radio. We love them. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been a a dream for me. Like, uh, you know, right when Cult of Loretta came out, um, I felt like really new to uh, that was in 2015. I didn't really know much about publishing and indie presses or anything. And I went to um, AWP and I, you know, I saw the $2 radio table and it just felt different than every other table um, at AWP. It felt like, you know, the way like Seattle sub pop felt or like yeah. uh, a skate company or something. It, it felt like it had a lot of integrity and that every book was visually beautiful. And um, at that point I may have already read, um, Crapalacha by Scott McClanahan. Oh my god, and, classic! And like, I was just like, "Oh, this is it! This is it!" So I think I kind of like fell in love with them then, and I talked to Eric a bit, and I think he left there with a copy of Cult of Loretta, and sort of emailed me a little while later, like, "I read it and I loved it." So I was like, "Okay, he liked one of my books. Like, when I finish that next book, that's you know, that's the top of my list." And um, luckily, we connected. I mean, it took a lot longer to write that book than I thought, but. Uh, yeah, they were like top of my list in terms of publishers who just, um, you know, feel small enough to care and and really take on like me as a as a writer and yet have kind of a reach and a respect in the industry that's more associated with like the big four or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and they uh, have yes. that vegan cafe. Yeah, I, I've never been, but I'm going to I'm, I'm going to go there in a couple of weeks. So. <gasps> oh, nice. yeah. Get one of everything and then film yourself. <laughs> So I can live vicariously. I'm excited. It's unbelievable how big $2 radio has become uh, in a way that is just where they really have not, they don't feel different. The books don't feel different. When you, when you pick one up, it still feels like a $2 radio book and you're still surprised by the choices in a great way. Um, But it's like, they are really, really doing it. Um, I just feel like it's such it's a it's such an impressive operation um i'll men- i'll mention this real quick because i'm we're we're in the process i'm in the process of starting a, a press uh with my friend emily adrian kevin and uh we actually launch next week it's something we've been working on for a year and a half and the first person we reached out to uh to ask for help um was Eric and he made time for us repeatedly answered so many questions, got on a zoom call with us emails. He was just, he really cares about uh, making sure good books exist in the world. And he cares about independent book people and he cares about writers and good fiction. And I'm so glad that you are working with them because they're just Eric and Eliza. They're just the real deal. They are Mm -hmm. absolutely the real deal. Yeah, I mean, they're amazing people, Eric and Eliza and Brett, you know, they've all been like, um, you know, incredible to work with and, uh, you know, tons of integrity. And I I feel like I've kind of just like been like, okay, you're my agent right now. Sorry, but, you know, <laughs> and I just like keep asking them all these questions and using and, you know, I hopefully they're not totally sick of me, but I'm just like, they're just such an incredible resource um, and very generous and kind and um yeah, I'm I'm gonna be out in Columbus in a couple of weeks, so I'm just excited to see see the actual operation because I, I follow them on social media and get hungry every time I look at their feed. So it's and, it's <laughs> so brutal every time they yeah. post a sandwich or something. I'm like, oh, I have to. You could make that drive. It's not that bad. It's true. I really could. Maybe I will. We'll see. The only time I was in Columbus, I took a bus to Columbus with my friend Max, who did our he actually did our theme music mm-hmm. and. Uh, we went and saw Tom Waits mm. and it was on the glitter and doom tour. The last tour he did where his, and his son was playing drums on it. It was fucking re- insane. And uh, we were young enough to uh, think like, ah, oh, we won't get a hotel room. We'll just stay up all night. Oh, and no. then the bus home. <laughs> there was an all night uh, board game tournament going on at like a convention center so we just like wandered around watching these fucking nerds play board games oh. all night <laughs> and then just like stumbled back into the bus. It was, it was great. So Columbus, good job. I love board games. So maybe that's <laughs> sure. another well, reason to go to Columbus. Yeah. yeah don't yeah. knock board games, right? Yeah. No, no, I have to. I have to. I have to. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about Horse Girl Fever? Yeah. Uh, it's a, so it's me coming out with Clash in 2024 and, it's uh 
Yeah, it's. I, I think I just had finally hit a point where all the short stories I've been writing since even before Cult of Loretta that all felt part of the voice. You know, I felt like there was a moment, there was like a story where it really clicked for me. And I just have written enough stories since then. I didn't want to just put one uh, collection of the world because I could. I wanted the stories, not necessarily a linked story collection by any means, but just that they all felt of the same tone, same quality. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to write one of those collections where the first two stories are bangers and then you hit the third and you're like, eh, wow, wow, wow. But, are uh, you dragging me right now? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I've made peace with that part of myself. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I just wanted to get to a point where I like, hopefully, because, you know, I, I just feel like uh, books, you know, how many books are we going to get to write in life? I don't know. Ho hopefully, you know, a dozen, maybe, but probably less. And I just, you know, I, I just felt like this would be a book that represents maybe a decade in my life of writing. And it, it feels like hopefully it's the best of the best in terms of my shoulder work. So I'm excited about it. And um, you know, I, I'm not always good at titling things, but I had that story called horse girl fever. And I just like saying those words and mm -hmm. the story was actually like needed so, a lot of work. So I like, I felt like I needed to make that story really good. Cause I wanted to keep the title, but um, <laughs> yeah, so I think it's, it's clicked, but, um, you know, I'm really going to start working with, uh, Christoph and, and Lisa, um, you know, uh, we, it, it'll probably change and grow and maybe a couple new stories will get added in, but I'm excited about it. And you... Nice. Uh, don't have an agent no I just okay. uh I guess I'm my own agent still at this point I'm just uh I just uh I've, I went to AWP every year for like seven years in a row mm -hmm. until COVID and I felt like I was just shaking hands and asking questions and I, I guess I'm still doing that to some extent but mm -hmm. but it's fine because look at you yeah exactly yeah I guess so yeah and, and I, I I think I you know at some point I realized like if you're writing a certain type of book that's definitely destined for a big four, then you absolutely need an agent. But if you like, if you're writing kind of outside of the like beach read type of book and you're like doing something really interesting, then often like I think an indie can be a better place to land. And a lot of mm -hmm. times that's just about making that connection and an agent doesn't always have to sell that book. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I'm not advice. saying I would turn down an agent if the right agent came into my life, but um Yeah. Well, I mean, just there. the fact, just the fact that you said, you know, your initial connection with Eric was he responded to your work. You kind of had him in mind as you were working on Redheaded Pilgrim, maybe like, oh man, I'm going to send this to him when I'm done. Like that's, that's what you need. Whether that connection is with an agent, a publisher, whoever it may be, like that is what I think writers are searching for. And once you have one of those relationships very often, I think it turns into a series of relationships because one person's passion kind of begets another person's passion and you go on. Um, yeah. I mean, look what happened with you, Alex and Emily and, you know, like what you guys are building yeah. together is, you know, based on friendships, right? Like, yeah, that's no, that's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think, I think that's kind of how book world can work for a lot of people for sure. That's great advice. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I always just really the most important thing for me was finding my voice. And then I felt like when I was writing, you know, stories and eventually longer work that I was really proud of, I felt like somebody would, you know, recognize that. And I think early on, it was like, Aaron Birch at Hobart was like started publishing a lot of stuff and like hyping me up online and I was like oh, I kind of made him my best. agent for a while because he was just my hype guy you know and then, I always think of him when I think of you honestly yeah. because he I think he mentioned Cult of Loretta like a thousand times online <laughs> to the point where it's like I mean he he really did I mean he just loves that book so much that it's I mean it did the work of 10 publicists, I think, in in like our small corner of uh, book world. Yeah, sure. I'm really lucky. You know, he's a good friend of mine now. And I, I, I do think that there's something to be said, or at least it's worked for me to try to just make connections with people who believe in the stuff I'm writing and, mm -hmm. you know, just trying to slog it out that way. So, right. I think a lot of times, too, it's like there's such a there's such a cynical way to look at anything that goes on in publishing where you're like, Oh fuck, that just happened. Cause those people are friends. And it's like, well, no, that just happened. Cause those people are friends. 
right like <laughs> yeah it's okay right. that's yeah. it's okay like it's that's how that's how business works that's how anything works it's like if you you know you want to align pe- yourself with people who care about the same thing you do and very often that's going to end up being a friendship and those are the people they're going to want to help just like you know bob who owns the fucking auto shop wants to hire hire uh, you know carl because he loves drinking beer with carl like come on this is a sneak yeah. peek of your novel alex isn't it bob uh, and it carl is, yeah bob and carl <laughs> yeah lot you know what's similar to kevin's work i tend to focus on the vulva and the penis um so yeah i mean I, that actually it's a subtitle um <laughs> bob is the, the vulva and carl is the penis <laughs> that's a better okay. title bob is the vulva carl is the penis is a better title so <laughs> Can you tell us just a little bit about, you have what we like to call around here, a real job. Yeah. (laughs) And how do you get your writing done? What does that look like for you? Um, I mean, it just doesn't, I mean, it's, I mean, lately it feels totally crazy and hectic. I, and during COVID, I, uh, I kind of got laid off, but it's really just that the company I'd been working for for 13 years uh, kind of dissolved and got rebuilt into something else. And I was mm-hmm. able to keep them as clients, but it made me, required me to sort of start my own business or kind of become a freelancer, which has been great in the sense that I'm my own boss now. So if I want to give myself a day off because I got an idea to write something, I can, but it mm-hmm. also means I'm kind of always working. So mm-hmm. uh, it's just a weird juggling act. And like, I'm, I feel like I'm barely pulling it off you know like I feel like an egg is always about to drop a crack on the ground and um yeah I I don't think um I think I think when I had a desk job and went to an office every day for 13 years it almost was easier in a way even though it took up more of my time it made my life much more broken into ritual so I would Mm -hmm. like go to work and then often I'd like there was rush hour traffic. So I'd stop at a grocery store on the way home and pull out my laptop and write for an hour and a half till rush hour traffic died. And that was just like a built-in writing time for me. And now that I can sort of write whenever I want, but I'm freelancing, it's actually, it's actually harder, I think in a way, I think ritual's good for me. So, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I, I think, uh, I don't, I don't know that there's an answer and I think that anybody who like wants to be a writer or an artist, like you're immediately probably never going to make a living that way. And that means you're like at war with yourself because you have to make money in this world. And so like, and if you want to like be married and have a home, then suddenly like you have to have a pretty good job. And I just think it's, it's always going to be a struggle. And um, I don't, you know, I don't know that I ever need to find a perfect balance. Maybe part of the like, tension pushes me harder to try to like write more books and maybe one day one of these will take off but I'm also never gonna like write a book just to try to make it take off I'm just gonna try to push my weird art in the world and see what happens yeah and I feel like you know there there are times in my life where I'm like okay I figured it out I know how to get work done now and then your life changes you know it doesn't <laughs> yeah. ever stay the same <laughs> and so you're like okay now I have to figure out how to fit it in now that I have another child or, you know, whatever. Um, so but yeah, Lindsay, your skill, your skill. And I know this cause I've heard way too much about your process over the last few years <laughs> is that, is that you have an incredible, you have an incredible skill at adapting to whatever your work situation, child situation, you know, people coming and staying at the house, kids being sick, you have an incredible ability to adapt and just focus and get things done. I mean, I think about some of the edits that you've gone through on major projects that you have just absolutely gutted through. And I mean, that, that is such an, that, that kind of tenacity and that kind of fuck this, I'm going to do it is so valuable. And I think, I mean, that's, that's a lot what Kevin's saying. It's just like, you have to have a willingness to just get the work done. Just, just do it. Just do it. Just do yeah. You have to have like this lifetime of childhood trauma that forces <laughs> you to be a go-getter. And then uh, <laughs> no, thank the you. Barn no. has to become a taco bell. And then. <laughs> yeah. The oh my God. Happens. Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank right. you. That's exactly right. right. No, but I think it's true. I think like, um, I, you, you, that's one of the things you do if you want to have a career is you 
you just keep adapting. That's a good mm-hmm. word for it. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know that I'm full of good writing advice, but I think like the one thing I've discovered is not to be precious about writing time. Like if it's right. the the 15 minutes I'm waiting for someone in my car, like that might be when I like pull something up and make an edit or write a few sentences. And, you know, I'm good friends with Bud Smith. And I think he's written half his stuff on like work breaks on his phone. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think I really had to like get rid of this idea of like, you know, a, a beautiful desk with a typewriter on it in like a, a month of uninterrupted time. Like I think today's, you know, best work is being done on iPhones in a grocery yeah. store line, oh, you know, I'm and sure, that's just, yeah. it's just using whatever time you got. Yeah, absolutely. That's it's true. like, and also I, I really relate and, and, and um work best with that, like, just like get it done mentality. Like, um, um, like I was talking to, uh, I'm going to name drop here. I was talking to Emily Kemp from this band called dead. And she was talking about how she just writes the songs. Like she just gets it done fast because yeah. that is the best way. I think otherwise then she just spins her wheels, spins her wheels, spins her wheels, obsesses. And so she mm-hmm. just wants to get it done. She wants to get it fast. She wants to get out what she's trying to get out. And it feels very like, you know, like my days of, of punk rock, you know, like, booking shows like just get it done like whatever you know like we're just gonna play in this abandoned warehouse and it's gonna be great and it was great (laughs) you know um there's just I just really I just really like still cling to that notion of just like make something you know make what you're making yeah I mean I think fuck around and find out is like the the way to make good art and not overthink it and not make it precious and just be like okay you know like Mm-hmm. whatever comes out and that, you know, but I'm like a meticulous editor of my own work at the same time. But I also think that like, you know, just trying to, um, I'm always like struggling to find that balance between like writing like precise sentences, but also holding on to that feeling of like electricity that happens when you're not overthinking, you know? Right. And there's a well, sweet spot there. And there, that attitude, the attitude that both of you were describing and that, that kind of um, making sure to, take time that otherwise would not be, you know, naturally devoted to writing and getting the writing in. It doesn't have to be related to finishing projects quickly. And it doesn't have to be related to speed necessarily. I think that's sometimes a misunderstanding that people have that just because you're dogged in your pursuit of the work doesn't mean the work has to be done quickly because the most important thing is just to be working. Eventually something will happen, but that doesn't mean that you're, necessarily churning out finished project, churning out finished project. It's just keeping it alive and mm-hmm. keeping it in your life. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, this fast, fast thing. Mm-hmm. Cause some yeah, people I mean, work so slow. I mean, we just talked, we just, sorry, Kevin, we just talked to this writer, uh, Sugi. Uh, can you pronounce the last name for Gani me? Jonathan. Gani Jonathan, who wrote this incredible book, Brotherless Night. And she worked on it for two decades, over two decades. Yeah. And 2004 to 2022. Kevin, if you haven't read this, if we handed it to you, you would be like, holy shit, this thing is like, it's alive, like right away. And it still has that, that quality that you're talking about. And I'm sure it's because there's something in Sugi that's just absolutely. And I know because we talked to her just doggedly pursuing this. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like tr- I like doing both. Like that, this the, the redheaded pilgrim took most of like six plus years to write, um, but then like uh, I saw a, a submission call recently at Autofocus, and the deadline was like two hours away, and yeah. I just was like, I'm going for it, and I just yes. it, was, it was like it was like 500 words, and I'm a big Top Chef fan. I don't know if you ever watched that show. Oh but yeah. Like, quick fires and i'm like okay this is like the quick fire of writing you know um and i think it's just like both are valuable right like the playfulness that can happen and what happens when you have two hours and a hard deadline versus like oh i'm gonna take years on this longer work and just feed it every day and i think both make can make great art absolutely well kevin thank you so much for coming on and talking to us this has been so fun this has been great Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me. It's great talking to you both. Likewise, yeah. the book is The Redheaded Pilgrim. It's out on $2 Radio. Everyone go get your copy so you can laugh along with us.
I really had a, a lot of fun reading the book. I, um, I'm glad he talked about like opening himself up to be unlikable or his character yeah. unlikable. Yeah. Um, making himself the target. I really, I found that so interesting because me too. Um, you know, anytime there's a, a character that obsessed with why women aren't having sex with him, I know. you know, it's almost it's, like I didn't realize how focused the book was on sex until I was almost done with it. And when he, when the narrator finally gets a divorce and she's like, like, finally, she's like, okay, like, we're going to split up, whatever. He's like, I just want to have sex with you. <laughs> yeah. He tries and to I come in like, and he takes his pants off. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I think <laughs> you're like, get think, out. Yeah. I was like, I think this guy's telling the truth. I think yeah. he just wants to have sex with her. And I was like, oh yeah. Okay. All right. Like, I don't know. It hadn't clicked to me that like the book was so much about sex, but uh-huh. it really was. And then when Kevin was talking about, um, kind of centering that in the narrator's like quest it's like yeah that makes sense okay <laughs> yeah it's a very fun book um, yeah for sure especially if you're in your 40s which you're not yet no i'm not sir as you love to fucking bring up <laughs> um i went to an escape room with a multitude of 10 year olds today i saw your post i didn't realize it's not today is not parker's birthday though right no, his birthday is New Year's Day, so we never really okay. can Got celebrate it. it on the day of. And we always have to go somewhere because, like, having it here, it's too cold. They can't have it, like, in the yard. And yeah, I don't no. want kids to trash my house. No. <laughs> and, um, and I didn't want to do, like, a jump place or a, like, climb zone or whatever. I just wanted to do, yeah. like, something special and different because it's his 10th birthday. That sounds like a really f- good idea. It, it was fun. so fun. It was yeah. a blast. Nice. Like I thought they would be like annoyed after 10, 15 minutes, but they were into it. Nice. So that was really good. Yeah. Um, Are you good at them? Am I what? Are you good at escape rooms? Oh my God. I thought I would be. Oh, is this group, the first time you did one? Yeah. My group didn't, didn't make it out. And the, their group, Ben, my husband and um, my son, and then like four of his friends, they, they escaped with four seconds to go. That's amazing. And we, no, we, we did not, but, um, still a lot of fun and yeah, it was just, it's just like a cool age. Cause the, they're still boys, you know, like still very boyish, yeah. but also like mature enough to like go sit at a pizza restaurant and not right be crazy and, you know, do an escape room. Anyway, it was, it was awesome. That sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a fun age. 10 yeah. seems like a full adult to me in a I lot know. of ways. I know. I mean, he basically is. Yeah. I mean, he kind of is. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? I mean. Yeah. I mean, he he like, he can handle himself. Totally. He's but so he still poised. says like, he still says like animal or um, aminal, you know, like he still like mispronounces certain things. Thank God. Stuff and exposed to instead of supposed to. Yeah. And I, I do. Never I think to myself, it. oh, yeah. thank God. You know, yeah. like he's still just a little boy. We had he, a... Yeah. Uh, we had a mispronunciation, not a mispronunciation, but we had kind of a blending today. I, uh, the two and a half year old, I asked her, I was like, she said she had to go to the bathroom. I was like, all right, sweet. You have to go pee or poop. What are you going to do? Ma- meaning, do I have to stand up? <laughs> and um, she was like, both peep. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's brilliant. <laughs> I'm going to use that from now on. I- I lost it. I was dying. I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Peep. Judith for a while would make me stand in the bathroom with her while she was pooping and close the door. Oh yeah. Relatable. Sure. I'd be like, I don't want to, you know, like this, I don't want to smell this anyway, but she would like, yeah, it's an escape room. And she would make direct (laughs) eye contact and she'd be like, Oh, this is going to be a really big poop. Oh wait, there's another poop coming. And like narrate. I love it. Every I moment. love it. I love it. As if it was like a privilege for me to get to be in there with her. I love how you, when you have more than one kid, you get to understand about humans that they have, and each each human has their own individual poop face. <laughs> and like you know, like your one kid, like when they're making that face, it's like it's <laughs> happening. And then the other one, you just come to find out, like, oh, 
It is different. <laughs> they are their own people. They came hardwired with different poop faces. It's just. Yep. Yeah. It's a beautiful life. Yeah. There's a lot of poop in a parent's life. Oh God. So much. Um, I started reading the idiot. Have you read that? I haven't. I would like to, because I know also didn't very recently a sequel or maybe not a sequel, but her new um, book came out last year. I think it's called either it, or. Right. Is and it isn't it? I thought it was, maybe I'm wrong. I thought it was related to the idiot in some way. Probably is. That up for one well, second. I tried to read the idiot. I think right after one of my kids was born, must've been Judith. Okay. And I just couldn't, it was just like mm-hmm. my brain wasn't there. And so mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to try again. Cause I recently, I never told you this, but I recently tried again with the transit of Venus and I, maybe I did tell you, and I, I finished reading it and it is one of the best books I've ever read. Amazing. Right. In my life. Yeah. We did talk about this. Shirley Hazard, the transit of Venus, like, it's the most incredible book, um, it is amazing. but it's, it took me like 75 pages to get a foothold in it, even this time. And so I was it's like, I'm con- going to try again with the idiot. It's a continuation of the story of Celan, a character introduced in her first oh novel, the idiot. Okay. Well, I have to read that after this, um, but anyway, it's so funny. Is it? It's I- so funny. And there's, um, there's these like little clues. I feel like she's leaving where it's like, Oh, this character is actually really not okay. You know, like, mm. I mean, I'm only like 80 pages in, um, but yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I'm like, what? Was I want to read me? it. There's so what many books like that. Like, that's a good example of a book where I'm like, all right, like widely praised modern, but like stylistically, I think I'd be interested that I just, I want to have like time. Yeah. <laughs> like I want like, I mean, I'm never going to get that time. Or I mean, I will. The kids will get older. But I'm just saying, like, like I would love to read that. But I just have, I haven't felt like I can sit and really. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I didn't for a really long time, you know, like. Yeah. Until like last year, you know. Yeah. It's hard. And it sucks because like I just yesterday I asked for recommendations for books on Twitter and I got like 20 books I want to read based on that recommendation and i'm like when no way am i name, gonna do name this? a couple of them um okay so i've never read any uh sarah manguso very cold Neither people mm-hmm. um lover boy by victoria riddell don't know it um i've been wanting to read gwendolyn riley for a long time my phantoms mm-hmm. um uh anita bruckner Oh yeah, yeah. One of her books, the debut by Anita Bruckner. So that's just mm-hmm. some of them. Um, I was asking for books on toxic caregiving. I saw not this. Okay, that's right. by proxy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got I got a lot of good recommendations, but it's like, oh my god, I want to read all. I really want to read all of those, but when you know, when man, yeah. I I had a similar thing though, where it's like, I didn't ask for recommendations, but I recently. <clears throat> alphabetized all my books and organized them and we didn't have enough bookshelves of course so it's like i make made bookshelves out of fucking cardboard boxes like an asshole and um but as you're going through and alphabetizing it's like oh my god i want to i either want to reread this or like i never read this or like i realized like i had a huge annie dillard phase Mm. i loved annie dillard and i read I haven't read everything that she has, but I own everything that she's written. And it's just like, I'm like, God, I would love to fill in those gaps or like whatever it may be. Um, What's her book about writing? Her book about writing that I have on my shelf out there, but haven't read is called, I have no fucking idea. I think I read it and I I read. Oh, is that the, is that, that's not Tinker Creek, is it? No, No. it's called the writing life. It's called the writing. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. It's incredible. yeah, I have it out there. I haven't read it. She's great. I mean, but like, I haven't read her in like over 10 years, but it's just like, I have all these Annie Diller books. I loved, I remember I really loved an American childhood mm-hmm. that she wrote about um, growing up in Pittsburgh. I loved that book. Um, yeah, whatever. But yeah, you just go through and you're like, it's like, God, there's not enough time. It's it is easier. It is devastating. There's, it is easier to get rid of books though when you alphabetize them in my experience, mm. I feel like it is clear. It's clarifying for me because like, it's like, 
motherfucker, that <laughs> tea stack I have is massive. You are not making the cut. You're gone. You're going to Goodwill or to Trash, and it's like not whatever. The tr- <laughs> you yeah, guys don't have funny. little libraries in your neighborhood. We do, but we don't support them. <laughs> you should. For a while, Ben was like, every time I go on a dog walk, I'm taking a book out of this house and I'm putting it in a little library. And that really helped. Yeah. And you still probably have so many not worthy that should just be. Well, I used to like, if I loved a book, I would keep it because I would think, well, I want to look at this one day or I want to read. And now I'm like, no, I can get it again if I need to, you know, like, yeah. So I've been giving them to the little libraries. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also have so many books that I got signed. So I feel like I can't get rid of them. Rip the page out. Mm, that's a good idea. JRL told me that. It's the best advice I've ever gotten. Who told you that? John. John John Lennon. Oh, John Lennon. Oh, okay. JRL. He yeah. was like, he's like, yeah, just rip the page out. Good that's book. a very that's a like, very... it doesn't matter. And then nobody's offended. I was like, that's brilliant. Yes, that is really smart. Yeah, because it, you know, it's really fine. It's at fine. a certain point you're like, I don't really need this anymore. I the exchange, like the the kindness has already happened. Exactly. And the, the exchange, the emotion, it's done. Yes. Page out. Bye. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you for that. You he's, freed me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's he's great. Um, I don't have anything else. No, me neither. Yeah. All right. All right, buddy. Bye. See ya. Bye. I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah, yeah.